In our 20s, people expect us to have things figured out. Us too. A well-paying job, getting closer to marriage, making new friends, and exploring the world. Lots of definitive moments happen in your 20s. But what if we move to the other side of the world? And what if we put our dreams first? I'm Mai. I'm Belle. And in this podcast, we share our thoughts about things that have defined our early 20s. Important moments in life and how we create our path to our late 20s. Welcome, Welcome to the M22 Podcast. Hello, 20s fam. Welcome to our eighth episode. Today we have a really special guest. We are so excited to have you here, Alex. Welcome to 22 Podcast. Alex is our professor from our master's degree in Berkeley, Valencia, and he's someone we personally admire really, really much. He has given us classes of finance. He's now giving us data class and also leadership. So just to brief a little bit, he has lots of expertise in management and data and finance which is so interesting because there are so many areas and it is sometimes difficult to find someone that is like really specialist in different areas so that's something really admirable alex to comment on that what i admire about alex is also his passion for teaching every day he comes to class and he's always you know passionate about teaching he's passionate about telling us about whatever is happening in the industry and even though our schedules are intense and i can't imagine yours is also really intense but he's always there for us and just an incredible mentor So if any of you are interested in applying to Berkeley, this is someone who I really admire and you should definitely try to learn from. So this is your chance to apply to Berkeley and get your education from some of the most incredible people that I know. Thank you for what an introduction. So Alex, just to start and we want to go through your career. Uh, we want to hear it from you. So could you take us through your career? A lot of us know you through Berkeley, but before Berkeley, you also work in a variety of different fields. So can you talk about us a little bit about that? Absolutely. First of all, when I started my career, I was uh, pretty not really very clear on what I wanted to do. I had two things in mind, mostly the video game industry and the tech software industry and consulting. Because I was graduating from my master's degree in 2000-2001. And at that time, there were a lot of new companies coming on. We call that the dot-com bubble after. And many websites started to become real businesses. And so at that time, a lot of opportunities. But at the same time, you had a crisis in the tech industries. So I pretty came on the job market with these two big ideas, whether I would like to work for a video game company or whether I would like to work in the tech field. And that's the two offers I got. One was at Ubisoft, a big video game industry company in France. And the other one was creation of a startup in the field of tech and software by two consultants from the Boston Consulting Group. And I chose the second one because it was more exciting and In fact, very, very new for at that time. So I started to be a consultant. That's the first job I did. And by being a consultant, you start to listen. You start to understand others. You start to work with people that are different from you. You start to interact with people like engineers, software developers who do not have a business background. And you learn more about empathy doing this. So listening, empathy. Two skills I started to develop in my career. 
And then I started to be interested into the field of collaboration and knowledge exchange data. And all of these things were, again, pretty emerging 20 years ago. And so I did a second master, a specialized master degree in that field. And at the same time, I was working in multinational companies. And then I thought, well, I should teach to my peers what I learned. And so while I was doing this program, I started to do a class, just one session, and I started teaching. And then it was very clear for me, I want to teach. Because doing that was the easiest part of everything I was done before. So yeah, that was pretty um, the, the, the moment I, I thought, well, it's nice to work. It's nice to be a consultant. But in fact, being a teacher is so much more fun. Yeah, we clearly see you're really passionate about that, which is really admirable. Yeah, I guess because you went from working a job and then you found your passion in teaching. How did you know this was, what was the moment that you realized I wanted to switch from working to teaching? And then what is your teaching philosophy when you're approaching teaching people of all ages, college students and now grad students? You've also obtained your PhD, so a certain level of higher education. What is your philosophy when it comes to educating people? First of all, I think you are becoming a better teacher when you have been in the shoes of not only students, but young graduates. So I think teachers in the higher education who have only been teaching all their life, I think they are missing a point. My second objective is I want to teach something that is useful now, but also useful later for you in the career. So not only, you know, tools, but also a way to frame issues, a way to think, a way to manage yourself and others, the leadership aspect of it. I think it's super key because nothing is going to or nobody is going to tell you what to do sometimes. Nobody asked you to create this podcast, but you did. So in the form of that, you are a leader. You are leading yourselves doing this podcast. So that's exactly what I love about working with students is you're always coming with fresh and new ideas. And this is what's absolutely amazing in, in the teaching life. It's one of the few things where you really impact others' life. And I became interested about the video game and software industry because of a teacher. In 1985, I was a student in a school in Paris, and one of my teachers was fleeing uh, Armenia, and he was coming to France. He was a former architect, and uh, his philosophy was to teach the new technology to kids. And uh, in fact, that really, really resonated to me. And today, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm trying to teach you new things and new technology so that you can anticipate what's going to be next. So I think that's my philosophy, really, uh, you know, teaching things that are useful now, but useful in two or three years too. Yeah, I've heard a lot from alumni that your classes, even though they're very hard and challenging, they find the most useful when it comes to real life context, because at some point, everyone's got to learn finance. At some point, you got to know how to read contracts and it's not just music it's anywhere in your life you have to read your housing contract you have to read contracts at your business so I mean right now I'm a little struggling with all the classes here but I know after Berkeley it will be very useful and to your point about music and education I personally also love you know education and I think I've been lucky enough to have education a lot of people in Vietnam they grew up and they didn't have access to that education they don't have resources so in the future, I'd love to also be like you, where I'm giving back to my community and having more and more people giving as much knowledge to them as possible so they can just know more about life and 
it's like the multiplication effect, you know, the more people who know about things, the better the society will be. So I really admire your passion and, you know, everything that you're teaching us. It's really cool. Yeah, we've been talking about in some episodes about like passions and like our lifestyles and our time management. And it is like so nice to notice in people that sometimes your work is so passionate that you don't even feel it like work. So that's like mm -hmm. the thing we actually aspire to. We are also like talking about our lifestyles and our time management because Maya and I, as you know, like we are a little intense in our activities. It's easy for us to get over work, guys. Like we've talked about lots of times this. So I'm wondering how was your lifestyle in your 20s? And like looking back now, would you have done anything like differently? When I was 20s, I I'm pretty was not very different from you guys. And that's absolutely normal. I think I was even less self-leader of myself. You are more trying to manage your time, but in fact, you procrastinate a lot when you are 20. And that, I think, the big change in your life between when you are 20 and when you are 40s is your time is becoming so precious and so limited that we don't understand that when you are 20. So I think managing your time better is something I, I regret when I was younger. But it's also part of the process. I mean, it's absolutely natural that when you are 22, because that's the name of the podcast, <laughs> that you don't know exactly what you want to do. My advice is try to find out what you don't want to do, what you're not so good at, what costs you a lot of energy and sometimes pain to do. Don't go into that direction. And of course, it's easy to say, oh, I found my passion or I am passion-driven, so I only want to work in the things I am passionate about. It's a luxury, but it's also you can find your passion into things that may not seem very, very attractive for other people. You can find a passion into video editing. You can find a passion into reading books and making critics about these books. And so I have many friends who are not really passionate about their jobs, but they have a passion aside, and they are super happy like this. So. We have to be careful of being too picky in the beginning of their career, test many things. And then when you are turning around, you know, maybe 30s, you start to know exactly the things you want and the things you don't want to do. But it takes more or less time according to each individual. Yeah, of course. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, because I think it's so easy for us to be picky. And I was just telling my last week, like, we are so used to get things fast, like the deliverables, like ordering stuff from Amazon. So sometimes our generation wants things so fast. And we actually, it takes us time to realize that we need to slow down and then move like in baby steps. So that's, that's really, I think that's a really nice tip to hear, especially like we're gonna digest it, you know? Because sometimes, yeah, we were talking last week about like, Are we doing enough? And we're like this pressure we put after knowing that we have a few months left to finish like the master's degree. It's so easy to have a burnout and like our mind just to keep going on. So yeah, we've, we've been talking a lot about this, which is really nice. Yeah, I think your generation compared to mine, we have almost 20 years of differences. You are really a great generation in form of multitasking. You work extremely faster than we did uh, 20 years ago. You are much more global mindset that we were. And I think you are much more mental health conscious than we were. Well, basically 20 years ago, the objective was to work as late as possible and being recognized by your boss to be the last one to leave the office. I think in 2023, that's not the case. And I'm very glad about this evolution. But at the same time, it created the other balance, which is 
a generation that is becoming a little bit too picky. And when things get hot and difficult, then to say, well, uh, that's not exactly good for my mental health. Well, that's part of the challenge, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you learn to manage this by time. And so that's, that's something that is a great evolution. But we have to acknowledge that sometimes it can be challenging to do things that are complex. And that's exactly what you are experiencing being at Berkeley. Yeah, I think the piece about mental health, though, it still kind of differs depending on the culture. Like I know in Asia, that's not yet a hot topic and people are still very much like working to live, you know. And so whenever it comes to like mental health or going to therapy or that whole space, people are still quite weirded out in Asia. They're like, you should just be working hard. You should be, you know, paying your bills, getting married as fast as possible. But when I came to the U.S. to study five years ago, I was kind of in shock by how open people were and how people were just like, I guess like they are separate from their families and what their parents tell them doesn't necessarily dictate what they do. And I really love that lifestyle, which is why as much as I love my parents and as much as they can tell me what they think is best for me, at the end of the day, I'm able to make my own judgment and just separate my decisions from them which is very nice. And it's a way of thinking that I've developed over the years because of, you know, meeting all these people from different walks of life in different countries. And on that same topic, though, family is a big topic. We talk in our podcast and we were wondering, like, in your upbringing, what was your family like? And what's the most or a few lessons that you still keep with you till this day that your parents or your grandparents taught you? I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question. Who do you, or what kind of job do you think my parents were doing before? They are retired, but can you guess? Were they teachers? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so my mother taught French literature in the college, and my father was an economist and teaching economics in business schools. And then he became a dean and, and uh, the director of several business schools. So. Nice. And he, he had this mindset that I kept, which is opening your mind as much as possible. That's something i really happy about that they taught me, not without, you know, really uh, judging, but really going to the place. So we traveled a lot you know, as a family. That's exactly what I'm doing with my own kids, is trying to go outside of the house as soon as we can and, and you know, go around and every weekend, you know, visit a new place. I think that's exactly what your generation and the next generation is going to do more and more with different, of course, mindset, because we have global warming now, so we cannot travel exactly the same way. You know, your family is always impacting you, not necessarily directly, but very indirectly. Yeah. And most of the things you understand from what your parents are giving you, you understand it when you become a parent, when you become a father or mother. And that's something you don't always get when you are 20 or even 30 years old. So um, indirect influence. So they, they never told me you should become this and that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems that I have some passion about teaching and it's not coming from nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> it was genetic. But you, you didn't try to avoid it, but you gave it a chance and you realized that was like... And my grandfather on the mother's side was, was also a teacher. Really? That's really interesting. And, and to combine and give a big picture, my grandfather on the father's side was a banker. You see, yeah. you have kind of, uh, yeah, it's all kind of a connection. That's really interesting. In my family, we are not connected at all. You know, like I feel like in my, you, you neither, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's really interesting. So you've attained two master's uh, degrees and a PhD. So why did you decide to pursue continued education? And for our young listeners, 
Any advice you have on choosing to work versus choosing to keep studying? Uh, that's a great question. I think I would advise you to get a first degree bachelor or master degree, but then work at least three to five years. That's usually why I would not take a candidate at Berkeley is because I think you are too junior for doing this, not because you are not a good student, but because you can get more from the degree if you have like two or three years of professional experience. And that's something I experienced myself because the, the master degree I did, the, the specialized master I did, I did it at the same time I was working for companies. And I was really, really more keen to absorb and learn the knowledge from the teachers and, and from the guest speakers. And so I would advise you to walk and then maybe come back to education when you have five, four, three years of experience, maybe to go to the next step, you know, in terms of leadership, in terms of managing team. And the PhD is another thing. It's, it's something that is more like a, an intellectual journey. And if you want to become right now a, a teacher or a researcher, I think it's an important degree to have. But beside this, I think you should bear in mind that you're going to learn all your life and all your career. And the great thing about having education over your life is you can reinvent yourself and go to new directions. Oh, on that point, I forgot to mention that Alex is our teacher for entrepreneurship practicum. So he keeps reinventing us like every I feel like every week I have something new to add to a project I'm building. Absolutely. So that's really that's really like helpful. I love that. I feel like Your passion, it's like contagious for us as students to actually move into finding new ways to make better the industry at some point. Like in everyone, like in their countries, everyone's focused on different areas, although our projects sometimes are similar. But I feel like every student like feels inspired and wants to keep reinventing themselves. No matter if someone's working on something similar, it's like I can keep going on. Yeah, I think really the skills or the kind of mindset I want to give you, which I apply to myself, is being curious. You know, really, really reading, talking to people, challenging your assumptions. I think it's super key. And in entrepreneurship, it's so important. We have so many assumptions. I guess, I believe, I thought, and then you talk to people and you're like, wow, in fact, it's not exactly what I was expecting to do. I'm pretty sure you learned a lot of things from, you know, doing this podcast that were totally unexpected. <laughs> And so I, I think by doing projects, that's how you challenge yourself and you still be curious. You know, curiosity is so important. That's a great tip. And I mean, I personally resonate with that so much and I think Val does too, because we're always trying and exploring new things. At a certain point, it does become too much, but in your 20s, I think that's where we have continuous energy. And maybe when we hit 30s, or we start having a family, that energy will be focused on something else. Like I know Laura, when we interviewed her, she talked about how having a kid was one of the most grounding experiences ever. And it taught her so much. But then in her mind, it automatically shifted to something else that's more stable and less adventurous, less I need to do all these things. And I'm feeling behind to move on the topic at Berkeley. We have so many guests coming in every week and in your leadership class as well as in the seminar and in general. How do you maintain these connections? Because you've had such a long career and I feel like you know everyone from everywhere. And whenever we're in need of something, you always have suggestions for us and this person and that person to reach out. But how do you maintain the connections? How do you keep track and how do you have energy 
to follow up on all these conversations. I feel like, you know, sometimes I'm struggling to do that. I think, number one, you have to consider that all these people are very nice human beings. So uh, we are in an environment where people are giving their time to teach you something. So that's pretty the magic. In the corporate world, it won't be the same because uh, you may have to financially compensate them <laughs> for their time. So I think, number one, they are very nice human beings and they are nice to talk to and be in relationship with. Two, I think I learn from them. Every time I'm inviting a guest, I learn something. And they give their perspective. And again, because you can't live the life of somebody else, it's amazing to hear some testimonies. So listening to somebody who is working for a big label, telling you what he's doing on a daily basis, hearing somebody who is organizing a major festival, that's something I would never have been able to do in my life, or I would need two or three other lives to achieve that. So you get straight to the point with testimonials, with guest speakers. And then the idea of keeping the relationship, I think that's something that is very natural that you get over time, just because you enjoy the relationship and the contact with this person. If you go back to the curiosity value, I think it's my main things. And when they ask me for something, just, you know, my opinion, my time, my contribution, I do it because they learn me something. So in return, I'm going to give them something. My motto is knowledge shared, knowledge doubled. So don't keep the knowledge for yourself, share it, and the world is going to be a better place. Yes, totally. Now, I am curious to know about your first encounter with music, because that's like something that happens in a different way for everyone. I have like my, my own story that's so special for me, and I believe yours, like I'm really curious to hear yours. So how was your first encounter with music? And when was the moment that you realized that you were you wanted to be like in the music industry field? Two things. One, uh, I remember when I was living in Paris, I was having my own bedroom and close to mine was my brother who is six years older. And he was putting a record from uh, Gainsbourg, which is a very important writer, songwriter and, and performer in France. And he put a song and with vinyl player and I say, hey, play it again. And I show it like this uh, from the other side. And he put the song again, hearing me. And then the song was over and I said, hey, put it again. <laughs> and I feel like I really enjoy listening to that song. And the second thing is I had a piano in my room and I was always seeing that thing, that beast in my room that I wanted to, you know, trying to capture and transform it as a useful thing. So I started to get class of piano, piano lessons, and I started playing uh, jazz music on this. And so, yeah, I did that for five or six years. My family told me I was pretty good at that. But uh, the thing is, then you become a teenager and you start listening to other kind of music. I transitioned to electronic music pretty a lot. And then you have less time to dedicate. But uh, unfortunately, my piano skills are very far from the one you have at Berkeley. My wife did uh, the same, but at the conservatory. So she plays, oh, yes. she plays well. And we still have a piano. And now my kids are, are testing it. That's so cool. We didn't know you had the jazz piano background. That's totally out of character. But it's very cool to, to know about that. What's your favorite concert experience? And I know when I went to my first concert, it really changed my life and changed the way I listen to music. Because when you're at home and you're just listening on your earbuds, it's different from being at the space, you know, being in the crowd 
or just really seeing the artist you really love and admire in person? Like, what was your most memorable experience? I'm going to share two of them. Uh, one, it's a funny story. I was in the Nice Jazz Festival on summer. So my family used to go to this festival, which is in the a nice area in Nice, a very old Roman area. And uh, I saw a, a jazz guitarist named John McLaughlin. I don't know if you know this album with Aldi Meola. Amazing album. And I was listening to this guitar player and there was absolutely no sound. In the nobody was talking and really absorbing the music in this ancient Roman amphitheater. Amazing moment. Fast forwarding, we are at Berkeley, Valencia, and I'm uh, elected a teacher of the year. And so I got the, the chance to go to the graduation ceremony and do a speech. And the guest who got honorary doctorate that year was John McLaughlin. Oh, wow. So that was funny because I was able to meet him and I told him I saw you in concert like 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a very nice moment. Second one is uh, the one I, I really enjoyed as a pop event. Has been I saw Beyoncé in concert in Lisbon recently. And um, the Black Eyed Peas when they were very good quality. I think that's, you know, pop moment when you, when you enjoy a big crowd of like 15, 20,000 people all together. I think it's the magic of it is you are all experiencing this at the same time. But also I love intimate places. You know, when you go to a concert and you have like a few hundred people and um, you have a, like a close connection to the artist. Yeah, that's really nice. I'm also into like more intimate uh, concerts where you connect. And also like, well, me as a performer, what I like to do is like having a conversation in between the music for people to connect more in an emotional way and like building the story and like sharing. Like, I feel that's like a really nice way to get in touch with your audience and read the vibe too. So that's that's really nice to hear. So I'm going to switch a little bit the topic. Actually, it's really fun because we were talking a lot about it last week. It was like probably our longest episode because we were like just so into it. <laughs> so I was still in my because we always speak before recording the podcast, like how are we feeling? And the last two weeks, I think I was like so drained by the fact that I feel sometimes we are exposed to so many information like daily, especially now that we are like job seeking and like, well, I'm trying to keep myself up to date with social media because it's my area now. Now that we're exposed to so much information, we know it's impossible to keep up to date. So how do you prioritize this information? It's a very important question. Whatever your age, maybe your parents are watching much more television as you do. In my family, it's the case. Maybe they are reading newspaper a bit more than what you do and that I do. I'm reading it in different formats. I'm choosing much more the media now that I was doing in the past. But... Beside the picking the right media, I think what's super important is to acknowledge that it's an important part of our daily activity, but also our professional activities to manage information. I would encourage you to read a book that I read for my PhD dissertation, which is uh, written by Henry Mitzberg, and he observed the job, the real job, the daily task of managers. And a very important part of this, even in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, was managing information, coordinating information. So it makes sense that even in 2023, you still do that a lot. And it's more challenging because you, are, uh, you have an unlimited jug box with online tools and the internet and all the media and TikTok and everything else. 
So what I do is usually I try to save uh, 20 to 30 minutes per day to read news, mostly from a left-wing publication, right-wing publication, and put in the center. And it's difficult to have a clear opinion on something. So you start to have kind of your favorite columnist and favorite people that are providing their analysis of the current affairs. And this is where, for example, I'm listening to some podcasts that are providing, you know, this kind of analysis that you can get in 5-10 minutes. It's great to forge your own opinion. But again, all of these media are opinion-based. So every time I'm listening to one of these media, I try to remember, okay, what's the agenda behind? What's, what, what is the angle that I know from this critique or from this news magazine on this journalist? Then I try to have the other point of view and then trying to have my own opinion. But the danger I see a lot is many people today see things only from the point of view of the media they are following. And so the discussion is becoming impossible because they all watch the same TV network, the same online publication, or they only get information through social media and Facebook or, you know, any kind of social media that are shaping the things that are pushed to you. So... You're right. It's an issue. It requires a little bit of knowledge of how media are working, the landscape. I would encourage you to find some mapping that have been made on all the publications in your country that are trying to identify if it's more like liberal, more conservatory, more left-wing, right-wing, because media are not neutral. It doesn't exist. All of them have an agenda, and I think that's what you should bear in mind. Yeah, and besides like all the information we're exposed to, it's also so easy to compare our lifestyles nowadays, which is also like we are so much into like mental health, but at the same time, it's so easy for us to put it aside for a while and feel pressured by what we're consuming on, on like social media or in general. Even though all of the platforms are focused on different things, you still get straight into it. And it's, it's so hard to keep yourself conscious. Like I feel like every time it's easier for me, but I need to constantly remind myself like, okay, this is enough information for today. Or like, okay, I shouldn't compare myself to, uh, just to my old, old expression. Like, so just to keep it in a healthy way, like I remember you were mentioning in entrepreneurship, like sometimes it's good to unsubscribe like for certain like newsletters or like channels because you're receiving like constant notifications and pressure of like you need to keep up to date. And for me, it's like the only thing I want to keep up to date is the changes that happen in social media sometimes, you know, because they're changing so fast and that's the issue. Like, How many things we pick, like I think it shouldn't be more than one hand on the daily basis of the things we are focused on and want to keep learning more every day. It's just overwhelming the fact that it's too much and it's everyone's voice. Yeah, and we shouldn't put too much pressure on our shoulder when, when we have to do this. So, for example, in your time at Berkeley, you are receiving every day the musical eye bulletin. Yes. Sometimes I'm reading it very carefully, sometimes less. That's fine, as long as you keep the routine on, you know, checking what's going on. In your professional life, it's an important part of your skills, is to keep yourself up to date of what's going on. In your daily life, it's different. For example, I never, never watch TV information, because it's highly, highly creating anger and uh, bad feelings. So that's something I started to do six or seven years ago, and I feel much better 
And that's something I would recommend you to do. I'm not sure you are watching TV <laughs> news. Oh, it's tough to wake up. Like <laughs> it's, it's tough. But uh, you may be attracted to do something else. Your generation is to uh, do uh, Instagramming or TikToking at uh, 11 p.m. in your bed or, you know, yeah. very late. That's really not a good idea, but it's super attractive, of course. So limit yourself doing this. It's a very good idea. Yeah. Better read a book. <laughs> Better read a book. Yeah, take notes of his book's recommendations because they're all like always good. Uh, I'm yeah. always like reading them. <laughs> When I was 20, 22, I was, I hated reading novels. Really, really, I didn't like that. And now I'm like reading a lot. Because reading books allows you to just escape from the daily life as you do it by watching a Netflix show or by listening to music. But also it helps you to write and express yourself better. And that's pretty amazing with literature. Yeah, I'm curious, what was your TikTok or Instagram back in the days? Like, what did you use as <laughs> an outlet when you're not reading books? It didn't exist. We had websites okay. that we were able to tap into. You asked me what I was doing when I was 22. When I was 22, I was studio abroad student in the US. And that's basically where I discovered Winamp, Netscape, okay. all the things that we were able to use to access information and photos. And But you have to imagine that downloading a photo at that time took five or six minutes. We were able to access to some of the content only because we were at university. At home, it took forever. So we didn't have that at all. We had only maybe 10 TV channels, few media, and we were not thinking about getting information through our computer. And we didn't have any phone with a touch screen. We had a phone with just to call. <laughs> so, yeah, the situation was really, really different. The one you have right now is much richer, more fragmented, more complicated. But when you know exactly the media or the podcast or the articles or the people that make you feel more clever, you know, more bright, more knowledgeable on a topic, go into that direction. Nice. Now that we're talking about studying abroad, I have this, this personal question. So you're always exposed to or surrounded by international students. Mm -hmm. And we are similar in some ways, but really different in others. So what is the most challenging part of working or teaching to international students? I would start with maybe the bright side of it. The bright side of it is you are all different, diverse, complementary. And again, because I am curious about the culture of others, I love knowing what's going on in Mexico. I love knowing what's going on in Vietnam, in uh, all the parts of the world. So by interacting with you, I feel more richer every day. So that's amazing. The challenging part of it is that sometimes you have... Habits, norms, values that are different according to different zones of the world. I am challenged sometimes by, you know, the kind of policy that may exist in the US, especially when you talk about thorny issues such as gender, racial differences. Why? Well, because I am not very equipped with the right language as not being an English native. So I'm always careful about this because it's something I do not manage very well, not being in the country itself. So being in a neutral space like Spain, while you are working with American counterparts, with Mexicans, with Vietnamese, with Danish and so on, I think it's a very nice place to be. Rather than being in a country where you do not really manage 
the understanding the world culture. So my job would be much more complicated if I would do it in the US than I'm doing it in, in Europe. So it's really 95% of the time pure pleasure talking to international students. But then it could also be, I guess I'm curious about your thoughts on how to manage personalities. Because yeah. in the music industry, there are a lot of people with incredible talent, but also there are just so many personalities. Some are loud, some are more quiet, you know, different working styles, different ways of creating. How do you go about, you know, in the education setting, you know, working with this and making sure that it's the most effective and productive for everyone involved, everyone in the class, but also kind of catering it to the differences in terms of studying, in terms of culture and all that? I think, number one, we need to remember why we are here as a team and why we spend time together. Why you are here? You are here to learn. So the framework for me as a teacher is to say, okay, we're going to go from point A to point B. You need to reach this academic criteria. That's the objective. You organize a project. You have to deliver this on time. Okay, then there is a kind of attitude I'm expecting from you. Be on time, be professional, not bullying on others, you know, these kind of things. Once you have set the framework, something you do in the beginning, not at the end, the very beginning, then you can install kind of a, a, an attitude that can be more creative, relaxed, call it the way you want. But I love, you know me, I love joking in classroom. I love having a feeling that you are in a safe environment, a safe space. You can say anything that can be said if you disagree. So I think it's working well because I set up the framework before. I think it's not working if you do the other way around. I never liked myself being a student. I never liked the teacher with putting at the same level as the student. I think that's not, not at all what you like. What you expect from me is to learn and learning in an environment that is comfortable. I think that's a cool definition of a job. Yes, that's nice. So we have one last question, and it's, it comes from one of your students, actually, of our community. Maybe you can guess who's the question. But yeah, it says, you have a great patience for us. Is it an innate trait, or you're getting better at it as your teaching career extends? So the question of patience, it's coming back to the question of where do I want you to go? If I want you to go to point A to point B, I'm going to be patient enough to bring you to the point B. But I'm going to put you the pressure to go to the point B without really telling you that I'm putting the pressure, but without filling you with some deadlines and some elements. Because I know that in companies, it's exactly like this. So much better to raise the bar as high as possible and then adjust. But you can't do the other way around. I cannot ask you to do something, put the pressure on and then say, oh, you know what? Finally, you have more time. No, I'm respectful about the deadline. If you are below the deadline, well, you're going to have a disadvantage in terms of grading. But in real life, education is real life. But in real corporate life, sometimes you have absolutely no extension. So I want you to be prepared for this because that's the reality of the working environment. Your client... When you do a work as a consultant, it's not expecting you to deliver five days later or two days later. So that's not a question of patience, to be honest. Patience is more like with something I do as a father with my kid. With you, it's much more managing the workload more than patience. 
I think two of the big takeaways from this conversation is one being curious, right? And then two is having patience, but not so much for in an education setting. But for me, it's like patience for myself and how everything is a process and a progress. And nowadays, we're all trying to be quick. I feel like sometimes we want Amazon to know what we want to order and just have it like at our door, like the next second. We're in that generation where it's like instant. We want to have that immediately. And if we don't, we're like complaining. And we're, but it's also to realize like, you know, creative work takes time. Learning takes time. And to grow, definitely it takes a lifetime. So that's something that I took away from this conversation. Yes, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing your like experience and your knowledge to, to our community. Really, really appreciate you as a teacher too, which is really inspiring. Like I've been considering guys giving classes, which is like, where is this coming from? And I'm sure it comes from you, you know, like, so yeah, thank you so much for, for being our guest. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And as you know, we're here every week. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Mary. Of course. Thank you, guys. And please follow us on Instagram. Send us any messages. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.